0: I'm going to ask you a question. Can you relate to this situation? You get invited to something that you're kind of obligated to go to, even though you don't really want to go. And maybe you spend some time whining about it to somebody who will listen. If you're married, it usually falls to your spouse. And then you end up going because it's the right thing to do. Not because you want to, but because it's the right thing to do. And then, something outstanding happens there. And in retrospect, you're really glad that you went. And then every so often, you think back on that event, and you wonder, what would my life be like if I hadn't gone? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, happened to me. My mom worked in the office at my high school school. You'd think that having my mom right down the hall from me all throughout high school would have assured that I never got into trouble. But you'd be wrong. It's not good when your mom is friends with the principal or the assistant principal, you know? They don't take your side. Anyway, because my mom worked at my high school, she knew most of my friends. And so one afternoon... About nine years after I graduated high school, my mom ran into an old friend of mine, my friend John. After we graduated high school, I went off to college and John went into the Navy, so we kind of lost touch. Anyway, mom and John talked for a while and John gave his number to my mom and asked her to have me give John a call. This was before the days of Facebook and before the days of cell phones. So if it weren't for that what we'll call a chance meeting, a providential meeting, I probably never have seen or even thought about John ever again. Anyway, on the Friday of that week, Friday night of that week, I gave John a call, and we caught up for a little bit. And then he said, what are you doing tonight? And I, oh, here comes the invitation. All right, you know, I'm not doing anything. And he said, why don't you come join me? I'm getting together with some friends at a club on Miami Beach. Now... I'd never really been much of a go-out-late kind of person. I did not want to go. But because John was a friend, and he knew my mom, and he was very kind to invite me, I felt obliged to go, even though I would rather have stayed home. So anyway, I got to the club around 11.30 at night, which is really about my bedtime. I paid the cover, and I went inside, and I looked around, and suffice it to say, it was not my kind of place. It really wasn't my scene. But I looked around the crowded room and it was all hazy and stuff, and there were weird people dancing and whatnot. And I saw John sort of over there in the corner, and I walked on over and said hello, gave him a hug, we exchanged greetings, and he introduced me to his friends. And one of his friends was a girl named Beth. So hey, you guys live in the in the story too, don't you? Yeah. So Beth has been my wife for more than 30 years now. And and I often think about Just how glad I am that I accepted John's invitation. That accepting of of John's invitation changed the trajectory of my entire life. Why did I tell you that story? Well, I told you to illustrate the point that you just never know what hangs in the balance of an invitation. We are in part three of our series, Investigating Jesus, How We Know and Why We Follow, So, won't you join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for this ecclesia that you're building here, this gathering, this called-out gathering of your people. Thank you for the friendships you're developing here, the relationships. Thank you for friends who've become family. Thank you for allowing us opportunities to be together outside of this gathering to really do life together. God, as we take a look at your word this morning, as we head back into Luke's gospel, we ask that you would show us things we've not seen before, that you would keep our hearts and minds open so that we can allow your word to change us. And God, we thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through this, this stuff now for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that we're living in a very unique time in human history. Interest in traditional Christianity has been on the decline for 20 years, more than 20 years. Mainline Christian denominations are hemorrhaging members. And sadly, many of the faithful in those communities aren't doing anything to stanch the bleeding. In fact, many are doing just the opposite. Instead of seeking to reach the lost with the good news about our great God presented in a way that people can understand and relate to, many are becoming more closed off and fearful and defensive more than ever, ever before. And they're often doubling down or tripling down on the ways that made people uncomfortable in the past, and they're not leaving any space for people seeking after God in the present. I I have a a professor who likes to say it this way. He says about seeking after God, you take the first step, God takes the second step, and by the time you get to the third step, you realize it was God who took the first step, not you. Well, at the same time this phenomenon is playing out, the culture at large is hell-bent on convincing people that the Christian faith is not only dated but also damaging, dangerous, and deceitful. And many believers are caught in the crossfire, unsure of, of what to believe or how to respond. That's one of the reasons we're doing this series. The second reason is this. We're, we're going through this stuff now because Easter's just a few weeks away. always happens this way. Right after Christmas, it's Easter. It always works that way. But Easter is a time of year that people are inclined to take another run at understanding God. Whether it's out of guilt, or out of tradition, or out of family obligation, people, people around Easter time are interested a little bit. And they're interested notwithstanding the anti-Christian vibe that's settling into our society, which makes it a good time for us to be ready to put our best foot forward. Now, as we've seen over the last two weeks, the Christian faith is unlike any other faith system. The Christian faith rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, the person of Jesus. So when it comes to Christianity, the real question is, is the story of Jesus worth believing? Are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and or John, are they reliable accounts of actual events? Because if any one of them are, much less all four of them are, reliable accounts of actual events... It means that what Jesus said about himself is true, is factual. And what Jesus did are things that really, really happened. And if that's the case, we should all pay attention. I mean, that should just grab us by the lapels. Because at the end of each of the Gospels, there's an event that makes Jesus' story worth telling. So in this series, we're looking at one of those accounts... Of the life of Jesus, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And when we be- began this series, we talked about how the Bible is not just a book, but the Bible is a compilation, a collection of books, a, a library, if you will, of different kinds of writings, different kinds of books. And while the writings of the Apostle Paul were mostly letters to specific communities of Jesus followers scattered around the region at the time, and the writings of James and the writings of Peter were more general letters written to believers scattered throughout the region, the Gospels were written as factual historical accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. Okay. Now recall that Luke began his gospel, we talked about this in week one, not with an introduction that was going to indicate that he's about to tell some fanciful story. He didn't start off with, once upon a time, or a long time ago, in a galaxy, far, far away. He didn't say that, rather he said, he started off by beginning with the word, many. Now, Luke was telling us he was neither the first, nor the only person who was intent upon giving a true account of the facts surrounding Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. Luke was one of many. Many in Luke's day knew the importance or felt the importance of assuring that the events surrounding Jesus' time on earth were were accurately conveyed and accurately preserved. And they weren't writing about ancient history or even a distant past. They were writing about events that took place in their midst, in their present day. So, Luke, remember, he was a physician, he was specific, he was a scientist, he was a thinker, he was educated, he undertook to write an orderly account for Theophilus, and we are all the beneficiaries of that work as well. So, at the beginning of his gospel, Luke described the birth of Jesus, and after that, he introduced us to the warm-up act, John the Baptizer. We talked about him last week. And He talked about John the baptizer, and he talked about the important questions that people asked him. So John introduced Jesus to the world by way of his immediate audience in Judea. Well, today we're going to start off where we left off. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up Luke chapter 4. I'm using the New International Translation. You can look at whatever translation you like. You'll be able to follow along. So here we go. News about Jesus spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. When Jesus launched his earthly ministry, even though they were nothing like him, people liked him. And Jesus liked them back. Indeed, Jesus unconditionally loved them, so they felt comfortable coming to see and hear him. And when we're following Jesus the right way, that's how all people will feel about us, too. Now, Luke first mentioned the apostle Peter right after Jesus was done with his synagogue teaching. We go to Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, remember, Peter's given name was Simon Shimon. But Jesus gave him a nickname, Peter Petros. Basically, the nickname, we could translate it to Rocky. a rock, okay? That's that's what Peter's nickname is, okay? So from here on out, I'm going to just refer to him as Peter, just so you know who I'm talking about, so you don't have to do that switch in your mind as we go along. After listening to Jesus in the synagogue on a Sabbath, Peter invited Jesus over to his home for a meal. Probably lunch. Wait, Peter was Jewish. Probably brunch, Peter was married and when Jesus arrived at Peter and Mrs. Peter's home, we don't know her name, he discovered Peter's mother-in-law was living with them. Lucky Peter. Now, I loved my mother-in-law, just so you know. Now, Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So, Jesus bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And she, the mother-in-law, got up at once and began to wait on them. Wouldn't you know it, word of this miraculous healing got out. And verse 40, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying hands on each one of them, he healed them. So people here, whoa, Jesus is healing people. Quick, get your people that need healing. And they all brought them to Jesus, and he healed them all. Now, before we go on, I just want to make a comment about healing miracles. Why were the healing miracles included in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because for us sophisticated folk here in 2023, let me ask you a question. Do you think the healing miracles we find in the Gospels make the Gospels more believable to us? No, they don't, do they? In fact, they kind of make them less believable. They kind of make it seem more like a fairy tale. We tend to look at the ancients as some superstitious bunch of rubes who would believe anything. And we really do think that. But why, if we think that, would they be included in the Gospels? Well, Luke included them in the Gospels, these healing miracles, for a very simple reason. They happened. They really happened. So then we ask the question, why? Why did Jesus perform these miracles at the beginning of his ministry? Well, this is one of the things that you, if you talk to me and ask me questions, you'll get this answer every so often. You're going to have to ask Jesus when you get to heaven for the specific reason. But we can speculate about it just a little, which might be helpful for our purposes today. So think about it like this. The core of Jesus' ministry on earth was not the things that he taught. And by that I mean... The core of Jesus' earthly ministry was not knowledge solely for knowledge's sake. There were plenty of rabbis teaching knowledge, plenty of teachers in Jesus' day, most of whom we know nothing about, by the way. There's a handful that we've heard about, but most of whom we've known nothing about. The thing that set Jesus apart wasn't his teaching per se. The thing that set Jesus apart was who he claimed to be, who he is, and who he was. You see, in the first century, disease and illness were associated with sin. And later on in Luke, Jesus would claim that he had the power to forgive sin. So if Jesus could show that he had the power to overcome illness and disease, it would be logical that he also had the power to overcome sin. And that makes the healings that we read about in the early part of the Gospels stepping stones on our path to understanding Jesus' ultimate power to forgive sin. And this is a theme we're going to see again soon. Where were we? All throughout the night, Jesus stayed up, healing everybody that anybody brought to the house. And then, verse 442, at daybreak, so Almighty's up, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. At, At daybreak, Jesus needed a break. So he went out to recuperate, to spend some time with God the Father. But the people still wanted to see him. Of course they did. The people were looking for him, verse 42. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They wanted Jesus to stay. They wanted him to keep on healing people. And we'd probably do the same. We'd want him to stick around and heal the people we know. But, but Jesus said other things he needed to do, verse 43. But Jesus said, I got to go. I have to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And so, Jesus moved on. Now, whenever we see the phrase kingdom of God in the New Testament, it refers to the reign of the or, the or the applied authority, that's what reign is, of God. So, Jesus was on a mission from God the Father to go and proclaim the good news of God's kingdom all over. So, verse 44, he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So, Jesus is traveling around, preaching this good news throughout the synagogues. Now, before leaving the region, Jesus headed down to the Sea of Galilee, where an event that, if you've been a church person for a while, you've probably heard of where that event took place. So, here we go. We'll go to Luke 5 now, Luke 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Lake Gennesaret is also known as the Sea of Galilee. Now, again, I, I talked about this uh, scholar that I was, I was listening to a few weeks ago. One of the things he says, which is really interesting, you know, Luke was Paul's traveling companion. So Luke got on a ship with Paul and traveled all over through rough seas, through the Mediterranean. They were shipwrecked. I mean, Luke had, Luke had been out on the water. Now, the Sea of Galilee is really a big lake. And so for somebody who'd been out in the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and who experienced the storms, this professor postulates and says, well, that's why he referred to it as the lake, as it is, because it wasn't all that impressive to him. He'd seen the sea. Anyway, true or not, I don't know, but it made sense. It was interesting. Anyway, the Sea of Galilee, of course, is a lake about eight miles wide, 14 miles long. We continue on in Luke 5.1. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now, this is interesting to think about. When we hear the phrase, Word of God, what do we think of? We think of the Bible, right? But when Luke wrote the phrase, Word of God, there was no the Bible. It wasn't compiled yet. So after the resurrection, when, when, which is when this was written, when Luke referenced the Word of God, he was talking about the words of Jesus. You see it? After the resurrection, Luke had already so equated Jesus with God, that he was comfortable equating Jesus' words with the words of God. Isn't that cool? All right, so Jesus was teaching, verse 2, and he saw by the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, Luke doesn't take a lot of time to expound upon this scene for us, and, and we go, hmm. I wonder why. Well, it's easy to see that Because the original audience in the first century would have been able to picture the scene very easily, he didn't need to say anything further. If I said to you I'm going to Publix, I don't need to describe Publix to anybody, right? We all know what it looks like, so I don't need to give you further description, and you walk in, it has this terrazzo floor and this weird green sign, right? You know it. But they, they, in a similar fashion. But for us, a little detail is helpful. So the scene Luke is describing is... Taking place in about mid-morning, 9, 10, 10:30. The fishermen on the Sea of Galilee had just fished. They just finished their shift. They fished all night. And they fished all night because the water's cooler at night. And they're surface fishing with nets, so the water's cooler. And the fish would have been closer to the surface, making them easy to cap- to catch with throw nets. So by mid-morning, the fishermen would have pulled their boats out of the water and they would have rinsed off their nets, and they would have stretched their nets out on a rack to dry. It's also likely that the women would have been on the docks cleaning and storing the fish from the day's catch. Once the nets had dried, the practice was to roll the nets up, stow them away, and then go home and take a nap. Kind of like I do after church on a Sunday. Because you've been out all night, you've been working all night, you're tired, you take your nap. So Jesus sees two boats, and here's what happened, Luke 5, 3, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Peter, and asked him to put out a little bit from the shore, push off a little bit. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now remember, here, Jesus already knew Peter. He'd eaten at his home. He'd healed Peter's mother-in-law, so he's, he's been there. He, they've broken bread. So he was familiar enough with Peter to ask Peter to, to follow his direction. So Peter got into the boat with Jesus, pushed off from the shore. Jesus sat down to teach from the boat. Now, consider this. Because Jesus asked Peter to do this, what did Peter have to stop doing? He had to stop cleaning up after his work day. He had to stop cleaning off his nets, cleaning out his boat. He had to stop all that to focus on Jesus. So anyway, Peter situates the boat so that Jesus could speak to the audience on the shore. So Jesus is out in the water, and the audience is on the shore. And then Peter sat down to listen to Jesus teach, because he kind of had to, right? I mean, there was nowhere else for him to go. He's sitting in his boat. The teacher's teaching. Like, he's going to teach, and Peter's going to listen. So Peter stayed awake. I'm guessing here, but I can't imagine Peter would have fallen asleep on Jesus, no matter how tired he must have been. Remember, he was up all night fishing. Now, we move on to verse 4. When Jesus finished speaking, he said to Peter, Now, put out into the deep water, and let's put down the nets for a catch. Now, a few things I want you to see here. First off, Jesus asked Peter to do something that Peter was very skilled in doing. Right? Peter's a fisherman. He didn't ask Peter to do anything like perform a miracle or anything like that. He just asked Peter to do a little thing for him. They are already a bit offshore, Jesus says to Peter, all right, push out even further into the deep water. And then Jesus instructed Peter to let down his nets. You know, the same nets that Peter had already cleaned and dried and rolled up and stored away. Jesus wanted to go fishing, which was totally doable for Peter, but it was unreasonable for Peter. You see that? Like, the fishing day was over. This didn't make any sense. Peter had already finished fishing. He was about to go home. He was going to rest up for the next evening's fishing. But because of Jesus' request, Peter would not get to keep his normal routine. Jesus asked Peter to go fishing again, even though Peter was going to go fishing that evening as well. So Peter was either going to be exhausted, fishing three times in 24 hours, or he would be out some money if he chose not to fish that night and just catch up on his rest. Neither choice was very efficient, and neither choice was very convenient for Peter. But not only that, and maybe to Peter, more importantly, going out fishing in the late morning would have been a huge waste of time. Any fisherman will tell you just how difficult it is to fish on the surface of the water in the heat of the day. But Peter answered politely. Here's what he said, Master, We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So here's what Peter meant by that. So here's what he meant. Again, I'm paraphrase, but go with me here. Master, we've already fished. At the right time, you fish? And we didn't catch anything. With all due respect, Master, what do you think is going to happen if we try to fish at a time that everybody knows you don't catch any fish? And then Peter thinks, Eh, you did heal my mother-in-law. And you healed a bunch of other people, too. And your teaching on the kingdom of God was so spellbinding. So, all right. Even though I'd normally say no to this kind of time-wasting request, if you want to go fishing when there aren't any fish to catch, I guess it's the least I can do. I know my Peter and my biblical characters when I talk always sound like Jews from New York. (laughs) Just indulge me, okay? What Peter said next is the place where this story intersects with my life. And hopefully it's a place where this story will intersect with your life as well. Peter said this, but because you say so, but because you say so, this is critical. In fact, before we go on, let's say it together, shall we? But because you say so. You realize how powerful that statement is? That statement has the power to change the trajectory of your entire life. Maybe you're struggling with the direction in which God is leading you. Maybe you know what God wants of you in your current situation, but you're just not happy about it. Maybe you think the way God is leading you is inconvenient. Maybe you feel like God's timing isn't right. Maybe you feel like you just can't afford... To answer God's call right now. Maybe because money's tight. Or or because your kids are too little. Or because you have other plans. Maybe maybe you're worried about what other people are going to say. But maybe you also know deep, deep down. That it is what God is calling you to do. Please know that your response in this moment. May very well have the potential for good in your life that is better than anything you could ever have imagined. And even though it seems unreasonable, even though it seems impossible, even though it might even seem a bit perilous, or maybe you're afraid to take that step into the unknown, what if? What if you take that step anyway? I have been there, guys. Other people in this room have been there. And for me, when I finally quit resisting and said yes to God, He blessed me in ways that I never thought possible. And the joy that I now experience when I think about the amazing place where God has led me just because I said yes, and when I think about the relief that I feel because I understand the horrible situation I would have been in had I said no, and the fact that I understand that that's available to everybody who makes the right choice in that moment, who answers yes to God in their lives just because he said so, man, that, mo- that gets me out of bed in the morning. That's available to everybody, to all of you. For the Jesus follower, it's here that everything changes. See, Jesus wasn't asking Peter to believe something. Jesus was asking Peter to do something. Jesus was asking Peter to take a step of faith a step that was perfectly within his ability to take. And Jesus knew that if Peter's faith intersected with God's faithfulness and he said yes, it would change his life forever. Verse 5, Peter answered, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. See, Peter knew just enough to take that next step. But, and this is important for us to see, Peter didn't know. He didn't know what hung in the balance of the next step. And we don't know that either. But isn't it true for those of us who've taken those steps, for those of us who can look back at those moments in our lives when we were at a crossroads and we listened to God's calling, that we shudder to think about what a mess we would be in now if we'd chosen not to listen to God? If Peter had said no in that moment, you know something? We wouldn't be talking about him today, would we? If Peter had said no to Jesus, he'd just have been another first century fisherman whom time and history would have completely forgotten. Like, um... And, um... Right? I mean, but Peter said yes. And because Peter said yes, there is a city in Florida named after him. <laughs> Think about that? A lovely one at that. And... There's a city in Russia named after him. And there is a breathtaking building called St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican City. Peter didn't know that. Peter didn't know any of that was coming. Peter had no idea what hung in the balance when he said yes to Jesus' seemingly pointless request. But he said yes because Jesus said so. And the rest of the story, as they say, is history. History. We never know what hangs in the balance of our decision about whether or not to follow Jesus. You know what Peter knew. You know you can take that next step, whatever it is that God wants you to do. But what you don't know is what hangs in the balance. So Luke finished up. The boys were going fishing again. So Peter returned to the shore. He got the nets and the fishing gear. He called out, hey, guys, come on, let's go, fellas. I know this is nuts, but the rabbi asked me to do it, and it's a good idea to listen to him, generally speaking. Now, don't miss this. They all complied with Jesus' request. Before they understood and before they believed, they acted on faith alone. They acted on faith in Jesus alone. And after heading out what could have been a few miles into the deep water, they let down their nets, and, verse 6, when they had done so, this is why Luke wrote this account, so that we understand the faith of which Jesus speaks is an active faith. It's a living faith. And in order to experience God in your life, we need to have an active living faith as well. It's that kind of faith that engages God's activity in our lives. It's that kind of faith that engages God's activity in our relationships and in our world. It's an active, living faith through which God's Holy Spirit inside of us works to accomplish God's purpose in and for us. So when Peter and the boys had done so, not believed so, done so, when they had done what Jesus asked them to do, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners and the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Remember a few minutes ago, I asked the question, why the miracles? It's because the point of Jesus' ministry was not just what he taught, but also who he claimed to be. Jesus, God who took on flesh, was more than just a teacher, more than just a prophet, more than just a good guy. Jesus had authority over nature. Jesus is Lord. And when the men in the boat with him realized who Jesus was, Peter fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. Did you see it? Before Peter called Jesus Master, after Peter called Jesus, Lord. And why did Peter tell Jesus to go away from him? Because in that moment, Peter's sinfulness was all he was able to see about himself. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. See, all his life, Peter had been taught that God distanced himself from sinners like Peter. And Jesus wanted to show Peter and the boys a different way. And Luke had to tell us about it. Not only does God not distance himself from us, God came near to us. God made his dwelling among us. God came so near that he said to Peter, take me fishing. God came so near, if you remember your scripture, that he went to Matthew and said, Matthew, I know everybody in your community hates you, and I know your friends can't be trusted, but I want to invite myself to your home. God came so near that He said to Zacchaeus, hey Zacchaeus, come down from that sycamore tree. Today we're going to your ceremonially unclean home. I'm inviting myself into your life. I'm inviting myself into the most intimate setting there can be in first century Judea. This is Luke's point. God has not distanced himself from us. God has drawn near to us. And the sinners, they recognized God. And they liked him for it. And the the self-righteous, they simply didn't. And they couldn't. Jesus changed everything. This story is for us. Luke concluded this chapter like this. Then Jesus said to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Can you guess what Peter did after that? He fished for people. Why do you know Peter's name? It's not because he was a fisherman. It's because he became a Jesus follower who fished for people. Just like Jesus told him he would. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. You see, Peter had no idea what was on the other side of his decision to say yes to Jesus. But here's what Peter noticed when he looked back on the crucifixions. This is going to come out of 1 Peter. Here's what Peter noticed that he wrote after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Here's what Peter wrote. 1 Peter 1-2. When they hurled insults at Jesus, Jesus did not retaliate. Now, before the crucifixion, if you remember, Peter retaliated all the time. Peter was always spoiling for a fight. But he noticed that when Jesus suffered, Jesus made no threats. Before the crucifixion, Peter would have noted, do you know just how horrible crucifixion is? Peter would have said, I'd have been threatening everybody in the room. But after Peter's walk with Jesus, he understood what it meant, that Jesus neither retaliated nor threatened. But instead, still in verse 23, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter would say, but that's not the best part. Because in that moment, talking about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, looking back after the crucifixion, Peter saw it all clearly, and that's why he left us with the gospel The good news about our great God that even though we are all sinners, even though none of us deserve God's goodness and grace and forgiveness, God so loved the world that he sent God the Son to us and Jesus came and paid for our sins on that cross so we could live lives of righteousness connected for eternity to our Heavenly Father. And Peter would say, and Luke would say, that's Why? Jesus is worth following. That's why we follow. And that's why you have to follow too. Not because of what Jesus will do for you, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Through his account, Luke wanted us to experience what Peter experienced firsthand. And Luke wanted us to know that we too, like Peter, have been invited to follow. When Peter's simple act of faith intersected with God's faithfulness, Peter would never be the same. And when you answer the very same invitation, when you act on, when you say yes to God, something's going to happen inside of you as well. There are some invitations that feel more like an obligation. And following Jesus may feel that way to you. But if Luke is telling the truth, and if Peter is telling the truth, nothing could be further from the truth. Following Jesus is going to be inconvenient. But take it from me. I promise you that down the road, refusing to follow Jesus is going to be more inconvenient. And here's how I know. Your greatest regret would have been avoided if you'd been following Jesus in that season of your life. Let that sink in for a moment. And what seemed in that moment to be the interference of God will upon hindsight show itself clearly to you as the salvation of God in that moment and in those circumstances. And so, that same Heavenly Father who loves you and who sent His Son to die on the cross for you says, I want you to follow me. Not so I can ruin your life but because I'm the author of life. And I want only the best for you. Is it going to seem inconvenient sometimes? Yeah, it will. Is it going to cost you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. But refusing to follow Jesus is going to cost you more. Much, much more. Following Jesus is the best thing you will ever do in your life. So when God is trying to tell you something, whether he's just tapping you on the shoulder or whispering in your ear or he's clobbering you over the head, remember to respond to his call with this, because you say so. You never know what hangs in the balance of that decision, but I can assure you, and God can assure you, More importantly, you will never regret it. Take that next step. And we'll pick up here next time as we continue investigating Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this message. Thank you for Luke's diligence and recording it for us. Thank you that we have it to read 2,000 years later, that we have it to help us understand you better. Father, thank you for loving us so much that notwithstanding the sin that's corrupted us, you still desire for us to be yours. So God, as we head from here today, allow us to understand that we're your hands and feet, that they'll know us by the love that we have for one another, and that you've kept us here so that we can tell others about you and then draw them closer to you as we move along. We thank you for this time, God. We ask for a blessing upon all who are part of our community, whether they're here or watching remotely or far away. We thank you for bringing us together. In Jesus' name.